This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Judges chapter 8, and we're going to wrap up the story of Gideon. We've been in Gideon's story now for several weeks. There's a lot in Gideon's story, and I just really didn't, didn't want to rush through it too, bu- too much. We're going to, however, cover the bulk of two chapters today, so I want you to hang in here with me. Uh, at the end of the story of this man, Gideon, who has a great story of somebody that, was, that came to see the Lord and know the Lord, and God chose him to do a, uh, something that he never thought possible, he never would imagine in his own life, that this poor farmer would lead an army and defeat this huge army of the Midianites, 135,000 people, men in the Midianite army, and Gideon uh, led led Israel to defeat the much smaller army that they had. Um, But there's some things here at the end that I want us to focus on this morning that uh, that are important truths that we as God's people need to understand from a biblical perspective. What do you mean by that, biblical perspective? So much of our character... Uh, so much of our worldview, um, as, as, even as Christians today, here in this time in which we live, comes from what we have learned from sources outside the Christian faith that have great influence on us. It might have been our parents, certainly their great influences on us, but if they did not know the Lord, they might, might not have influenced us with a biblical worldview, which I believe is so important that we transfer to our children our parents our friends um you know we always had the things with our friends we're growing up you know and our parents said you need to watch out about the you know the friends that you have and and uh you know if you lie down with with dogs you get up with fleas and they had all those kind of things you know that well can i go and do what billy and bobby are doing well billy and bobby jumped off a cliff would you go jump off the cliff you know our parents said all those kind of things because especially as we're growing up our friends have such a great influence on us and, and how we think. Um, uh, what, what we see becoming popular and acceptable in culture as we, as we see things on television and in music and so forth, and we see what's happening that's popular in culture, and, and we can allow those things that maybe are not coming from a biblical worldview, and we can allow them to direct our lives. And some of those things in culture are fairly innocent, but, but a lot of things um, really are not. Uh, Gail asked me the other day, um, where is Gail? I see her somewhere around. Where are you, where are you hiding, sweetheart? Are you, you moved on me. Okay, usually she's hanging out over there because she's often playing the keyboard. She said to me the other day, are you letting your hair grow out? Well, you know, I haven't had a haircut since August. And she just asked me this the other day. And I, If she was to come home from the hairdresser and I did not notice a difference, you know what I mean, guys? You know, you, you got and, and she said, you let your hair grow out. And I said, uh, well, yeah. And, but I didn't tell her why. And, and, he, and here's the reason why. I'm, I'm trying to relate to modern culture. I want it to grow long enough where I can do a man bun. Um, <laughs> how would you like that? Uh, me either. Some of you are shaking your head. Um, we allow culture to influence how we think. And that directs so much of our lives. And we need to be careful. We as Christ followers need to be sure that we are doing just what Christ followers means, says. And what is that? That we're following Christ. 
Now, here's what we're going to see. Two big things I want us to notice today in the remainder of the story of this man, Gideon. First of all, justice and loyalty are virtues we need to uphold. They're virtues, they're moral values, justice and loyalty, virtues that we need in our lives to uphold. There's not a whole lot of loyalty these days in so many realms in our world, so many areas of the world. And then secondly, I want us to see this. I guess if I probably went to everybody's house in this room, I went to your house sometime this week, it's, I'm very doubtful that I would find some sort in your yard, maybe your backyard, some sort of a, of a sacred place, garden or what it, whatever it might be, where you would have some kind of an image, statue or whatever it might be, erected in your yard where you would go out to on a regular basis and bow down to and pray to and worship. I, I don't know that I would find that really common. I, I kind of think maybe in this room that pro- I probably wouldn't find that. And even if outside this room, I just went through people, just uh, random people, I doubt that I would see much of that. Why is that? We're not much into that in this country, into that kind of idolatry. But this next point is this. Materialism is another form of idolatry that destroys our faith. What I can find in a high percentage of Americans, even Christian Americans, is the idol of materialism. Materialism is, you know, um, get all you can and can all you get. You know, that idea of, uh, of keeping up with the Joneses and, and, and always having to have the latest and the greatest or whatever, you know, materialism. Uh, it's an idol that destroys our faith. So I want you to look with me at chapter 8. I'm going to read a good, good portion of, of chapter 8 right now, down through verse 21. We're, we're start with verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men, remember them, they, they were the ones that surrounded the Midianite army of 135,000 at night. They broke the pitchers, held up the torches, and shouted loud, these 301. And they it frightened the Midianites so badly, they got out of their tents. It's dark at night. They don't know who's there. They think the Israelite army has, has, has come into their camp, and they begin to pull out their swords and begin to killing each other. And then they, those that survived that uh, began to flee, and, and the... And the, uh, Gideon called the allies, the, uh, the, the reinforcements from some, tr- from some tribes up in the northwest. They came down and chased the Midianites toward the Jordan River. Well, Gideon also called the Ephraimites, who were not far from the Jordan, on the, on the west side of the Jordan, and said, run to the shallows in the Jordan where they would cross and block it. And so there was a blockade. They, they, blocked, they formed a line there at the Jordan River. And as the Midianites are coming and being chased by the rest of the Israeli army, they were trapped. And so consequently, Israel had an overwhelming victory. Some of the Midianites escaped, and we'll see that in just a moment. Well, what are Gideon and his 300, the original 300 guys, who broke the pitchers and had the torch and shouted? They didn't go home and go back to bed. They began to pursue as well, and they came to the Jordan River and crossed it. And they were exhausted. They'd been up all the previous day, all that night, and now it's getting near morning, and they're exhausted, and they're hungry. They haven't eaten in hours and hours. And so he said to the men of Succoth, this is the first city they came to on the east side of the Jordan River. He said to the men of Succoth, please give us some loaves of bread. Give it to the the people who are following me, to my army, my 300, because they are exhausted. I want you to notice, too, we've talked about Gideon and his leadership. Gideon's not focused on himself at all here. He says, I want you to give food to the men who are following me. They are exhausted. He didn't say us. He didn't say we. He talked about them. I'm sure he wanted to eat as well. 
They're exhausted, for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. The leaders of this mighty army that had been 135,000, they are pursuing those. Now, the, the other guys, we read earlier last week that the, uh, they had captured, the men of Ephraim had captured Oreb and Zeb, two princes of Midian. But these, are, these aren't the colonels, these are the generals. These are the kings. He's pursuing them. We need some food to go on. But the princes of Succoth asked, are, you, are, are Zeba and Zalmana, these two kings, are they now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Hey, where are they? We don't see them. Why should we feed you until you capture them? We're not going to feed you anything. So verse 7, Gideon replied, very well. Okay. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmana over to me, I will trample your flesh on thorns and briars from the wilderness. Now, the word trample there, the Hebrew word, is the same word that was used in chapter 6, talking about Gideon threshing the grain. Remember how, how I said he did it? He held the, had the grain and he beat it with a stick. Same word here. I'm going to trample your flesh on thorns and briars from the wilderness. So he left. Then he went on from there, and he went to the next city, Penuel, and he asked the same thing from them. Would you please, please, my army's just really hungry. We need something to eat. The men of Penuel answered, just as the men at Succoth. And well, we don't see that you've caught anybody. When you, when you catch the kings, come back and we'll think, you know, then we'll give you something to eat. And, and, and Gideon told the men of Penuel, I'll tell you what, when I return in peace, I will tear down this tower. In the ancient cities, typically they would have walls around them. And in the center of the city, they would have a tower. And that tower would be their last refuge, their last place of defense. That would be the place where everyone would go and climb the tower and, uh, from the, from the, and be protected there from the invading army. Well, my family, Gail and I, and, and Terry and Sarah went to Ireland earlier in the year, and we saw a tower just like this at a monastery. where it was, And that's where the monks would go, we were told, when the invading armies would come and, and try to try to destroy them. And so I, I saw an example of this. He said, hey, when we come back, I'm going to tear down this tower. In other words, I'm going to leave you defenseless from that point. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna, these two kings, were in, uh, in Karkor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men, who were all those left of the entire army of the Kedemites. Those who had been killed were more than 120,000 warriors. They started with 135,000. Now they have 15,000 left. Can you imagine 120,000 dead warriors scattered throughout Israel? Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked their army while the army was unsuspecting. Apparently while they were asleep, they've been running all night, they're, they're not ready. Gideon and his army attack them. Zeba and Zalmanah fled these two kings. They took off running. Gideon pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and routed the entire army with his 300 men. It's amazing, this story. Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herod's, by the pass through the mountains. He, he captured a youth from the men of Succoth, that first city that he had gone to that said, no, we're not going to give you any food. He got a young man from the city of Succoth and interrogated him. And essentially in this interrogation, he forced this young man to write down for him the names of the 77 princes and elders of Succoth. Tell me the leaders of your city. I need to know who they are. So he gives him a list, and then he went to the men of Succoth, and he said, here are Zeba and Zalmanah. Here are the two kings that we went out and we got. 
You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So, as he had promised, he took the elders of the city, he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. You ever go wandering through the woods, walking through the woods, and have to walk through a briar patch, through a bunch of thorns and stuff? That's no fun. It's worse than when you're running from something and that happens. It's got to be even worse when you're told to lay down on the ground and be beaten with these things. And we don't know because it doesn't tell us. Did they die from this? We don't know. But certainly, if anything else, this had to be a very painful punishment that they were given. He took the elders of the city and did that, disciplined them. And then he went back to the, the city of Penuel, verse 17, and tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He asked Zeba and Zalmunna, these two kings, now, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And they, their answer was this. You know, they all kind of looked like you. In other words, I think they're all from the same family that you're from. And Gideon, that's how he understood it. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jather, his firstborn, his youngest son. And by the way, this gives us a little bit of an idea of the fact that Gideon was not an old man. right? Because he's got a, his firstborn son is still probably a teenager. But he's gone with dad into the battle. And he says to Jather, this young man, get up and kill them. You see these two kings? I want you to kill them right now. The youth did not, Jather, he, he did not draw his sword. Why? He was afraid because he was still a youth. He's never, this, he's not hardened, he's not experienced, he's not, doesn't maybe understand all this, and he, he got scared, he said, I can't do it, Dad. And Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings, they were a bit insulted. You know, if we're going to die, and this is how kind of how warriors think, if we're going to die at the hands of the enemy, don't let it be a kid that kills us. We don't want to die. What kid? You know, if we're going to die, Gideon, you're the big general. You kill us yourself. And they said to that, that to him, get up and kill us yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up. He's strong enough to do this, Gideon. He, got, he gets up and kills these two men, took their crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Let's stop right there. Talk about loyalty. I said we're going to talk about these two virtues, loyalty and justice. Let's talk about loyalty for a moment. Sticking with your commitments, not switching allegiance. Loyalty is synonymous with faithfulness. Some people, anybody here, you are strictly, raise your hand if it's true about you, you are strictly a Pepsi drinker. You won't touch a Coke. Any, any of you get people like that? Wow. How many of you, anybody here is strictly a Coke drinker? Yeah, I, I found the same thing was true in the last gathering. Apparently, Coke must, you must think Coke is better. Uh, there are people like that. They would rather fight than switch. You know? it, it, loyalty is the saying, blood is thicker than water. That's a, a statement of loyalty to family. That's loyalty. I like the ex this expression. You've heard this one. You dance with who? The one who brung you. Have you heard that before? That's a southern saying. You dance with the one who brung you. That's loyalty. The pro-athletes. And they're very rare, rare birds these days. The pro athlete who stays with the same team throughout his career. He comes in as a rookie with this team and he retires with the same team. You don't see a whole lot anymore, but that's loyalty. 
loyalty, loyalty is a great virtue that we ought to possess. Now we look at these two cities, these Succoth and Penuel, that would not give their fellow Israelite and his army, wouldn't feed them. And we wonder, why, why do they refuse to do that? And, and, you know, who knows, but they were disloyal. But maybe they were, uh, you know, they're supposed to be on the same team, but maybe they uh, were afraid of reprisal from the Midianites. You know, they're thinking, if we give you food and you go out after them and they don't get caught by you and they come back through here and they found out that we helped you, they may destroy us. Who knows? But by refusing to give Gideon's small army the food, the Israelites in these two cities, what they really were doing was aiding and abetting the enemy. Essentially, their refusal to feed the army was treason. And that's why you came back and you saw what happened with them. Now, here's a point I want you to get this morning. About, this is about loyalty. God expects us to be on his side. Where should our loyalty be? It ought to be to Christ, to the Lord, and on the side of his people. In the book of James, chapter 1, illustrates this for us. James says, when you ask him, when you're talking to God and you're praying, when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and as a result, they're unstable in everything they do. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you ever, does it ever seem to you that God doesn't hear or answer your prayers? You ever have that time in your life when you pray, you pray, and it seems like, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. God's not hearing my prayers. He's not answering my prayers. Well, here's, here's a place in this passage where it says such people should not ever expect to receive anything from the Lord. The Bible says that one reason why our prayers don't get answered is maybe it's because our loyalties are divided between God and the world. Between God and the world. God and what he can provide, and the world and what it can give us. And, and here's the deal with this kind of divided loyalty. It's not easily seen from within. Typically, when this is happening in my life, I don't see it. Somebody's got to point it out to me. Somebody's got to say, hey, Rick, well, who are you, where, is your faith really in God alone, James said? Make, I have to, somebody sometimes I can't see it in myself. And when someone points it out to me I need who, who understands God, I need to stop and say, hey, probably some truth to what he's saying, what she's saying about my life. When we try to live with our hearts divided, even though we confess to be Christians, our tendency, here's what happens. I, I'm counting on God. I'm also counting on what the world can provide me. I'm counting on God for my self-image. I'm counting on the world to tell me I'm okay. I'm counting on God for, you know, we go on all the different things that we count on, and we're holding on to both God and the world, and, and it's, you can't do that. And when our tendency will be, when our hearts are divided, our tendency is going to be, and I've seen this happen over and over again, Christians loosen their grip on the Lord, and they hold on tighter to the world. See that happening over, and you know why that is. I can't see faith. 
Can you see faith? Faith isn't something we see. It's something that we experience. It's something we see the results of in our lives, but we can't see faith. I can't see God. I can see the results of what God does in my life, but I can't see Him. But I can see the things that the material things that the world wants to give me. I can see those. I can see my paycheck as it comes in. I can see my investments as they're growing and, and, and or shrinking. I can see those kinds of things in my life. So we tend to grab on to what we can see and let loosen the grip on what we can't. Divided loyalties. So there's the virtue of loyalty. Then there's the virtue of justice. And we see a lot of justice in this passage. Justice simply means What's wrong is, is, is being punished, being taken care of. Justice means God does not let us get away with it. And so he showed justice, God did, to these treasonous cities of Succoth and Penuel. And God, Gideon promised, hey, when I come back and I have those two kings, I'm going to enact some justice on you two cities. And he does. Toward the Midianite kings who have been raiding and marauding Israel, for seven years, year after year after year now, they're captured. They're going to pay with their lives. That's justice. Now, in the Old Testament, justice was an especially important theme to the nation of Israel. There's a lot of justice. You know, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know? Somebody steals something with his hand, cut his hand off. That was their justice. There was a lot of justice in the Old Testament. And, and why is that? And the answer is, if we practice justice in our lives, in our culture, in our society, as they did, they did it because very simply because they needed to understand God is just. What do you mean by that? Well, his justice was revealed at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. When he had this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, in this garden where he had provided for them, Everything they needed. They weren't lacking a thing. How many, of you would like to, how many of us would like to live that kind of a life where we're not lacking a thing that we need? You know, Not necessarily what we want, but nothing they needed was lacking. They had it all provided by God, and God says, but here's this one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat the fruit off that tree, he says, because if you do, you'll be disobeying me, and the day that you eat the, the fruit off of that tree, you will what? Die. You'll die. That was justice. The New Testament says something similar when the, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That's justice. And here's where there's a struggle in the minds of some Christian people, because Let's be honest. We love the idea, the fact that John writes about in 1 John, that God is love. John says it very plainly. God is love. Go God. We like the love. Yeah, give me some love, God. We can all use a little, a little love. We like the idea of a loving God. The problem is we often paint God in a box of love that really isn't love at all. For example... If it's true that God loves what is good, do you believe that? God loves what's good? Do you believe that? Nod at me, do something. Let me know you're awake. You believe God loves what is good. If that's true, then it must also be true that God hates what is evil. If God loves what's good, 
God must then hate what is evil. Even God can't love good and evil at the same time. He can't do that. But that's not saying God doesn't love, hear, hear me very carefully, that's not saying that God doesn't love evil people, good people, I don't know, let, me, let me restate that. that. That's not saying that God doesn't love people who do evil things. Does God love them? I, I believe he does. How do you know that, Rick? Because he loves me, right? He loves you. And while we were still sinners, the Apostle Paul wrote, we were at enmity with God was his word, meaning we were the enemies of God. We were doing evil. Even while we were living that way, Christ died for us. And he's, Paul says, here's proof of God's love. God loves people who do evil. He just doesn't love the evil. He doesn't love what everyone says. He doesn't love what everyone thinks or what everyone does. He hates evil and he enacts justice. Now, here's some Old Testament scriptures for you. Psalm 97.10 tells us, you who love the Lord do what? Hate evil, right? So Proverbs 8.13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Amos 5.15, hate evil and love what is good, listen, and turn your courts into true halls of justice. You see, when we begin to love evil, is justice going to be around? No more. It's gone. And some might argue, but yeah, Rick, Rick, come on, man. That's all that Old Testament stuff, you know. Uh, we don't live in the Old Testament times. And, and people have this concept, this idea that something happened between the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and that somewhere in between there, God got born again. God changed. He became, instead of a God of justice and, and so forth, he became a God of love. But I want to tell you, God does not change. What changed? What happened? We'll talk about it a little bit next Sunday when we have communion. But the Lord gave out a new covenant. All right? We'll talk about that some next Sunday. That's Old Testament, people say. And they'll say, but in the Old, and I, I've had this conversation recently with a Christian. In the Old Testament, it's kind of like, it all turned to love, just love. You ever hear anything like that from people? In the New Testament, we're told that there are some things that we are to hate. For example, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And in the same breath, he says, here's what love looks like. And while you're practicing sincere love, he says you've got to hate what is evil. The word sincere there, let me give you a real quick Greek lesson. The word sincere there is a Greek word that means without wax. When they would make, the people that would make pottery and pitchers and so forth, that would, they would sell in the markets, they make these out of clay, you know, the potter's wheel and so forth, sell them in the market. Sometimes those things would get just little hair, hairline fractures in them, cracks in them that you, with, with the naked eye you might not see. But, but you know, if you have a, a, a pitcher and it's got a crack in it, it's going to leak. So what they would do is, if they saw a crack, they, they don't want to toss it and throw it away, but th what they would do is they would take some wax and they would pour into that crack, cover that crack up, seal that crack so the wax would get inside that crack and smooth it over. And that way, um, if you look, you know, if you, if you just picked up the pot, you wouldn't notice the crack. And if you poured some cold water in it, nothing would happen. But if you poured anything in that pitcher, that pot, that was hot, what would happen to the wax? 
it would melt. Then what would happen, come through the crack, whatever was in the pot would leak, and you'd be, man, I got ripped off. That's what the word sincere means, without wax. There are no fractures in it, no cracks in it. By the way, how would the people, you know, if you're out in the marketplace and you're going shopping for, for a new pitcher for your kitchen and, uh, or a new pot for your plants or whatever it might be, and how would you know there's no cracks in it? And here's how they would know there's no wax in that. Because they understood, here's, some of these guys are not sincere about what they sell. How would they know? And, and the answer is they would take that pot, that pitcher, and they would say, where's the sign? There it is. And they would hold it up to the sun and turn it around and let the light of the sun, if there was wax in it, the sunlight would barely come through the wax. And they, hey, this has got a crack in it. What are you trying to sell me here? Sincere. Paul says, let your love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. In the same breath that he says love like this, he says hate what is evil. Now, on earth where we live, there are people who have done horrific crimes. We hear about them frequently, and sometimes they aren't punished. There's no justice for what they did. And we say, we have the phrase, they've gotten away with murder. And it's true, some people in this earth and in our culture never get caught. But with God, there is always justice. That's why, folks, that's why there's a hell. It's ultimate justice. That's also why, by the way, there's a cross. There's this grace that overcomes that justice. Our sin was paid for by Christ when he died for us. And when we accept his payment on the cross by believing in Christ, God then pronounces us, the theological term is justified. In other words, he looks at us because of what Jesus did, because we accepted him as our savior. And he says, you're not guilty. You're justified. Justice has been done. It was paid for by Christ on the cross. Now, the hero Gideon faces another challenge of another sort. The people want him to be king after all this has happened, to establish a dynasty, but he had no desire to be their king. If you look at verse 23 there in chapter 8, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he got it. He understood Israel, hey, we're supposed to be not a monarchy, with a human king, we're supposed to be a theocracy where God rules over us. No, I'm not going to be your king. He understood that. So he refused to be the king. Yet, in the, on the very next breath, he suggests a kind of a tax on them as a reward for him leading them to victory. Verse 26. Well, verse 24 says, let me make a request of you. Everyone give me one earring from his plunder. All the things you took from the soldiers that we just wiped out, you know, they all had earrings. I just want you to give me, everybody give me one earring. Now, the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, and they said, we agree to give them. Okay, that's a fair tax. Have you ever said that uh, in the United States? That's a fair tax. We agree to give that to you. So they spread out a mantle. They put a, put a, a blanket on the ground, and everyone came by, threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was about 43 pounds. I looked it up. 43 pounds, that's a lot. Of, it's gold. That's worth a ton of money. Well, not a ton. It's worth 43 pounds. And I looked, I looked it up and went online. So what's the price of gold today? And this would be $800,000. You know, here's Gideon, this poor farmer, a few days ago, he's in the hole in the ground, threshing out his wheat, beating it with a stick, and, 
and suddenly here, just a few days later, it's like he's won the lottery. He's, he's almost a millionaire, probably is with the other things that it mentions that he got as well. So Gideon, verse 27, made an ephod from all this. An ephod is kind of a vest that the high priest wore. He takes the gold and he makes a golden ephod out of it. Gideon didn't want to be king, but it sounds like Gideon wanted him to be in charge of all the worship with his ephod. He takes the ephod, sets it up in Ophir, his hometown, and then, last part of verse 27, all Israel prostituted themselves with it there. And he became a snare to Gideon in his household. What does that mean that they prostituted themselves with it there. It means they began to love another lover. That's what it means. That wasn't theirs. They stopped worshiping God and they turned to this ephod and began to worship it there. They prostituted. They, were, they gave themselves over to someone who did not love, something that did not love them. And there's no sin. He's got all this wealth. There's no sin in having wealth, and certainly to the Israelites, the fact that they were free from the Midianites now, in fact, it tells us later on they had 40 years apiece, free from the Midianites, marauding and robbing them of their crops and livestock by giving Gideon an earring, that's a small price to pay for the great victory that they had. But having wealth can be a snare. We need to be careful what we pray for. We need to be careful what we work for. How many lottery winners, by the way, are penniless in just a few years? You read those stories, heard those stories? 60 minutes. Possessing wealth, even the desire for wealth, can lead to wrongful worship, and that's what happened to Gideon. What he did with the gold is a prime, prime example of what Christians do who allow financial blessings that maybe God gives to them, that they... Their business grows, they get a promotion at work, um, you know, they, uh, they, they get an inheritance, they get some kind of financial blessing. Um, but money can be like it was for Gideon, it'd be a snare, a trap. Paul wrote that it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil in 1 Timothy 6.10. He didn't say money is, he didn't say wealth is, but the love of it can become evil when we do the wrong things with it. We fall into all sorts of evil. And Jesus said it this way, it's harder for a rich man to go to heaven, or not to go to heaven, to go to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, than it is for a camel to do what? Go through the eye of a needle. That's a good picture, isn't it? I understand that. I've seen, I've seen needles, and I've seen camels. And I look at both, and I say, no way, Jose. Jesus said, right. There's no way that, it's, it's really, really hard. Here's Gideon, a man who not only has met the Lord, a man who has shown obedience to the Lord, a man who's led, God, led God's people to a supernatural victory, and now he's doing something very wrong with the wealth that he has been, with which he's been rewarded. It tells us that he took this and, and he, that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. They lived for peace for 40 years. Verse 28, 29, Gideon had, by the way, Gideon, um, not only did that, Gideon, he had a bunch of wives. Verse 30, Seventy sons, it says, with all these wives that he had. Many wives. His concubine. Um, a concubine was like a, a kind of servant girlfriend that he shacked up with every now and then who was in another city as he was passing through Shechem. She was there, and, and, and she had a son from Gideon, bore him a son named Abimelech. Then Gideon 
Verse 32, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash and Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And when Gideon died, verse 33 says, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves with the Baals. Remember the, the idol that Gideon had torn down in his father's house, father's yard, back in chapter 6? Now the whole country begins to worship that God and turn their backs on the one true God. It says, and they made Baal Berith their God. The word Baal Berith means the Lord of the covenant. Where did Israel's covenant come from? Came from the God of Abraham. Came from the God of Moses. God repeated the covenant to them over and over, and now they're calling a statue the God of the covenant. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jerobel, that is Gideon, for all the good he had done. So his wealth became his downfall. And, you know, maybe Gideon just, when he created that ephod, maybe he just meant for it to be kind of like a memorial. People come through my town, they'll see this, and they'll remember the great victory that God gave us. But that's not what happened. It became his downfall. And then we see that in the next point. His lifestyle copied the world. Yeah, he's a wealthy man. Wealthy man, I can have a bunch of wives because I can afford them. So he has a bunch of wives and lives like a pagan king in a way that God did not Intend. We know from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 2, and from Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. God's not into polygamy. We say there's a lot of guys in the Bible that practice polygamy. And look what happened to all of them. Every time a guy has multiple wives, all it does is create heartache and jealousy and troubles every time. Doesn't matter who he was, David, all the rest of them. So we wonder as we. Read the story of Gideon, who was so in touch with God at one point in his life. How did he fall back into idolatry? And the the point I want to leave you with this morning is that we all have our weak points where we struggle. Every single one of us. They're all different. The writer of Hebrews calls it, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he calls it the sin that so easily ensnares us. And then the writer says it's like a weight that we're trying to run this race and we're carrying around this weight with us. And, you know, you notice racers in the Olympics and so forth, they wear, you know, in the marathon, they wear the least amount of clothes that they can possibly get away with without being arrested. Why? They don't want to carry around any weight with them because the weight does what? It slows us, slows them down. So he says, lay aside the weight, take it off. And Jesus said, how do we do that? He said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, take your burdens and put them where? On me, take your your yoke that's heavy and hard for you to carry and give it to me and I'll give you rest. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and all we have to do to keep us from falling to whatever that sin is in our lives, he says, it's really, really simple. He says, focus your eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I don't have much time to, to to tell you about the rest of the story, but let me do it real quickly. With his concubine, he had a son named Abimelech. Abimelech is jealous of his other brothers up in, up in Ophrah that Gideon had with his other wives. And so he, has, he, he takes money from the temple to this false god. He hires some assassins. They kill all of his brothers in the other city, except for one, Jotham, who was the youngest. And Abimelech then says to the, to the leaders of Shechem, make me your king. Now Gideon had already said, my son will not be the king. 
But Abimelech wants to be the king. They make him the king. They provided him with the assassins. There's going to be justice that, that takes place. He goes to one of the cities where there's a rebellion against him. The people don't want him to be king. So he goes to the city, and again, the people go, and they get into this tower in this city, and he goes and he cuts branches off, and he has his army. Everybody cut a branch off the trees and bring it in, and he lays it at the base of this tower and sets the branches on fire and burns up the tower and kills a 1,000 men and women. Another city is in rebellion. It's the city of Shechem that made him king now realize what a mistake they made and they begin to rebel against him. So he goes back to his hometown of Shechem. And again, they've assembled in the tower and he again begins to begin to gather the wood to burn the, ta- the, the tower down. But it tells us that way up in the tower is a woman who takes a millstone off the top of the millstone, a stone off the top of the millstone that she can maneuver, and from the top of the tower she drops it down and hits Abimelech in the head and fractures his skull. Doesn't kill him. So Abimelech's lying there, dying on the ground, and he gets word, man, a woman did that to you, dude. Well, the worst thing a warrior could have is to be killed by a woman. You know, good night. I don't want to leave that kind of legacy. So he says to his armor bearer, the guy who's right, hey, take your sword and kill me now. Better to die by your sword than by that woman's stone. And so the guy runs runs him through the sword and kills him. What is that? Justice. For all those people that he killed, for everything that he did, God saw that justice was, and God also saw that justice was done for the men of Shechem that elevated him to the position of king. Here's the last point in our notes. Let me jump to that and we're finished. My life's work will impact future generations. Gideon, you started off so well. You know, you really did. And you, you raised this army and God whittled it down to 300 and you believed God and you conquered the Midianites and you were such a great general, did so many great things. You were great, Gideon, but when the money came along, that was your downfall. And it says that when he died, back in chapter, the end of chapter 8, when he died, it says the whole nation turned to worshiping Baal. My life's work will impact future generations. Your life's works will impact future generations. What are we leaving to the next generation, Nagshead Church? What are we leaving to the next generation, mom and dad and grandparents? What are we teaching them to rely upon? Is it that they see we work and we work and we work and we work because we're trying to get all we can and can all we get? And that becomes what's most important in our lives? Or do they see us worshiping God putting him first and trusting him that he'll provide for everything that we need. They're watching. They watched Gideon, and it tripped Gideon up. And then when Gideon died, it tripped up the nation. And that was the last time when it said they had peace for 40 years, that's the last time in the book of Judges that it mentions them having any time of peace in Israel. My life's work will impact future generations. Would you bow with me in prayer? Based on how you've served the Lord, let me ask you the question, what impact, what impact are you making on the generations to come? Are you leading them to live victorious lives or are you leading them to follow something other than Christ?
Father, thanks for Gideon. Um, he's no different than the rest of us, though. He's, he got on the roller coaster ride that we often do. Um, but help us to learn from the lessons that you saw to it that are put in this book from him and his life that we can learn from ourselves. Teach us loyalty. Teach us justice. Teach us, Father, that we leave an impact on those that follow. And may it be a good one. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, God bless you. Have a great week. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.